of Deuteronomy. And it's from chapter 7. And chapter 7, verses 7 to 9. It says, The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your ancestors that he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery, from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God. He is the faithful God, keeping his covenant of love to a thousand generations of those who love him and keep his commandments. And our second reading today Uh, It is quite a short one from chapter 8, just three verses, but full of uh, so much wonderful and quite complex truth. Uh, So we're reading Romans chapter 8, verses 28 to 30. It says, And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. This is the word of the Lord. Hey, good to be here, family. Good to see you all. Um, This is one of those really densely packed theological sentences that Paul likes to string together every once in a while. But I'm going to do my best to unpack it in the most pastoral way possible, but know that there are books and tomes written on these verses, particularly on the one word, predestined, which is rich and beautiful and wonderful, but we're not going to get stuck in the nitty-gritty of it today, hopefully. Anyway, let's launch in. So I'm sure throughout life, you've heard this line said before, and maybe you've even said it yourself. Everything happens for a reason. Ever heard anyone say that? Ever said it yourself? Someone loses their job? Well, it's all right, man. Everything happens for a reason. Someone gets a bad diagnosis from the doctor? Well, it's it's okay. It's going to be all right. Everything happens for a reason. Maybe a long-time friend turns their back on you or backstabs you, betrays you. It's okay. Everything happens for a reason. You know, I was thinking about that this week as I was wrestling with this text. Why do we say that? I reckon it's because we want to hold on to some kind of a hope that everything's going to be okay, particularly when things aren't going our way. You know, as human beings, we're hungry for hope, right? We thirst for meaning. We want our lives to matter, especially the hardest, most painful times. And so to comfort ourselves and to comfort others, we say things like, everything happens for a reason. We try to put a positive spin on it. But I reckon a lot of the times these hopes, these wishes that we have actually hinge on nothing more than our ability to squeeze something good out of life's bad. You know, like to make lemonade out of life's lemons. But Paul's saying here that We as Christians, we don't have to live this way. Romans 8, Paul is pointing us to a different kind of hope, a hope that can ground our lives in God and his faithfulness rather than our own ability to make something good happen out of the bad. 
verse 28, Paul says that we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. Um, So we're going to walk through verse by verse and have a look at what Paul has to say here and how it can fill us with confidence. That's my hope, that we walk away from today with confidence for life. So we're going to ask three questions as we go along. The first is, who or what is my confidence in? We're going to ask, whose image am I being conformed to? And lastly, how can I be sure that this is all going to work out? So let's start with verse 28. Who or what is your confidence in? Paul says, we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. Who or what is your confidence in? Pete preached for us at retreat from verses 18 to 27. And in those verses, Paul is describing the suffering and the groaning that all creation endures right now. Creation's groaning, we're groaning. Things aren't how they should be. We're suffering, we get sick, we lose loved ones, people disappoint us. Life doesn't quite work out the way that we hoped and we groan. And in the midst of that, Paul tells us that God has given his spirit to live in us to help us in our weakness. The spirit convicts us of sin and gives us faith to trust in Jesus. The spirit reminds us, Paul says in chapter 8, that we belong to God, that we are his children. The spirit renews us with hope in God. Paul even says in chapter 8 that the spirit intercedes for God's people. He prays on our behalf, declaring and working out God's sovereign will over our lives, especially when we're too weak to pray ourselves. And because of all of this, Paul says that Christians can be confident even as we suffer in life. We know that God works all things for good for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. I want to point out that this is a confidence only the Christian has. Look more um, closely at verse 28, right? Those who love God are those who've been called by God. These two phrases, they're connected. Apart from God calling us, we would never love him. And Paul makes this point crystal clear, Romans 1 to 3. Yet despite God being good and glorious, since Adam and Eve's fall in Genesis 3, humans have been born desperately sinful. We are powerless to stop it. It's in our spiritual DNA. We are born, Paul says, as slaves to sin. Your natural instinct and my natural instinct is to reject God and to rebel against him. But God sovereignly calls sinners to himself and saves us to live as his people. And this has been God's um, game plan, his MO, since the very beginning. Kirsten read for us from Deuteronomy 7. Yeah, this is God speaking to the Israelites as they're about to enter into the promised land. And God says to them, I didn't set my affections on you and choose you because you were more numerous than the other peoples. In fact, you were the fewest of all the people. But it was because I loved you and kept the promises I swore to your ancestors that I brought you out of Egypt and saved you from slavery. Why did God choose Israel? Not because they were strong, not because they were powerful. Why did God save Israel? Not because of their goodness 
or their moral perfection or holiness. No. God chose them purely because he is merciful. God saved them because he's faithful to his promises. If you fast forward all the way to John chapter 6, if there's a Bible in front of you or if you want to pull it up on your app, that'll be really handy. In John chapter 6, Jesus says in verse 35 something that you know, many of you will be familiar with. Verse 35 in chapter 6, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. It's maybe something that you would have heard a few sermons on in your lifetime if you've sat in church for a while. But he goes on in verse 37 to say this, all those who the Father gives me will come to me and whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. Verse 39, he goes on to say, and this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of them that he has given me, but I will raise them up on the last day. In the verses following, Jesus goes on to talk to his disciples and to the crowd about how critical it is that they believe in him alone for eternal life. Um, But of course, as people do, they get offended. The religious leaders, you know, have something to say to Jesus and they turn on him and they walk away and so do some of his disciples. They say, we can't get on board with this, Jesus. I'm sorry. It's not what I signed up for. And then in verse 65... Jesus turns to the remaining disciples and he says this, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled them. Unless the Father has enabled us, we will not come to him. Unless he calls us, we will not love him. Jesus says in Luke 5, it's not the healthy that need a doctor, but the sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but to call sinners to repentance. And so for us here today, how can we be sure at all that God has called us? How can you be sure that God has called you by name to be his son or his daughter? I want to encourage you that he has called you to be his son or his daughter if you are able to turn from sin and entrust your life to Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Not just as a once-off thing that you prayed at youth camp one time, but as the pattern of your life. Because you wouldn't be able to do any of that had God not empowered you, enabled you to do so. You know, you can sit in church and people sit in church for their entire lives hearing sermon after sermon, thousands and thousands of sermons week in and week out and still have a hard heart and not turn toward God. He's got to enable you to do so. But when God does work in your heart in that way, it brings a deep and life-changing love for Him. Through Jesus, undeserving sinners like you and me. We've been made right with God. Our slate is wiped clean before him. And through Jesus, you and I, we're reconciled to God. In Jesus, we have an eternally secure and loving relationship with the God of the universe. And if you just sit with that, I reckon that's something that will fill your heart with gratitude. If you really grasp it and the grace of that, I think that would start to cause you to love God with a renewed passion and fire.
And so now, as a dearly loved and called and chosen child of God, you can come to him day by day, moment by moment, and experience freedom from condemnation rather than wrath. You can experience eternal love and acceptance and life in him rather than rejection, and you can experience an unshakable security that comes from belonging to him rather than fear. Jesus says that not a single one who belongs to him will be lost. John 10, 27, Jesus says, my sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. No one will snatch them out of my hand. So friends, if you're a Christian, you are safe. Your life is securely held by God. Nothing and no one can snatch you out of his hand. Your security in God does not depend on your ability to perform. It doesn't depend on your moral performance or your holiness or your strength or your goodness or how patient you've been with your kids this week or whether or not you've taken the Lord's Supper in the last month or maybe I haven't and so am I in or out, back of the line, front of the line sort of thing. None of that. You are eternally secure in Christ because it's dependent completely upon God's call on your life. And if he has called you, then you are safe in Christ. No matter what comes, he holds you securely in Jesus. Nothing, no one can snatch you out of his hand. He has called you, you belong to him. And so that's why for a Christian, we can be confident we can read Paul's words in verse eight and know them to be true for our lives. God will work all things out for our good. Even the hardest, ugliest, most painful things in your life, somehow God will work that out for your good. And as you live each day, trusting in that, experiencing that grace, your love for him will be fueled. Those who love God are those who are called according to his purpose. So I want to just take 20 seconds here and invite you to sit in a moment of reflection. Who or what do you place your confidence in? Especially when you face hardship, disappointment, suffering. Where does your confidence sit? And what does that look and sound like in your life, day to day? Let's look to verse 29. We've all got an image of what the good thing should look like, of what the good life should look like. Sometimes when Christians um, go through a hard time and they've got a friend who's wanting to reassure them and they say, hey, don't worry, man. God is gonna work all things out for your good. Sometimes in the back of our minds, we can have this image of a life that looks comfortable, successful, uh, influential, you know, a good life. Let's have a look at what Paul actually says is the good life. Verse 29. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. 
This is the good that Paul is talking about. If you're anything like me, um, then maybe when you hear the word conform, it makes you a bit uncomfortable. You know, I spent the first half of my life wanting not to conform and trying my hardest not to conform and then just conforming to a different group of people that didn't look like my group of people, but I just, it was a waste of time. Anyway, and in Aussie culture too, like, we're suspicious of anyone who tries to tell us what we should do, right? How we should look, what we should think. Culture tells us that actually you need to throw all of that off and what you need to do is go on an international holiday, find yourself, sit on some mountaintop somewhere, become your true self, and then you're going to live your best life. And maybe there's some truth to that because God did make each and every person in his image uniquely created and crafted to reflect his goodness and beauty and creativity. So maybe there's something to that. But notice what the Bible's reference point for the Christian's life is. It's not who you feel like you are deep down inside. For the, for the people of God, the reference point for our lives is Jesus. Just like the sculptor has the authority to mold and craft a piece of clay into whatever thing they see fit, right? Just like an inventor has the right and the power and the authority to build a machine to look like and to fulfill any sort of purpose, so too does God. Our creator get to shape who we become and determine what purposes we serve. Verse 29, Paul says that those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Now, if you were to be really brutally honest, whose image would you say you want most to be conformed to? I'm sure you've got a picture in your mind of the kind of person you want to become. Um, there's this thing called mimetic theory that tells us that although you feel deep desires within, that actually these desires in and of themselves aren't completely free from influence. They're actually shaped by the images and the models that you see most frequently and you value the most. That's what makes the chef chase the elusive Michelin star or the athlete chasing the gold medal or the politician chasing whatever politicians do. Um, but that's what makes us closer to home, you know, have this idea of what a good and pleasurable life looks like, what a comfortable life should look like or what an adventurous life should look like. That's what shapes your ideal of the um, ideal parent, the ideal citizen, the ideal influencer. See, we are bombarded by models and images in this world. And verse 29, Paul is saying that despite all of these competing images, God has one picture in mind as he shapes and molds your life in his hands. God conforms his people to Jesus's image. And these words for new and predestined, they paint for us a picture of God knowing us long before we ever came into being and choosing to enter into a relationship of love with us through his son. He knew you before he formed you and he predestined you to be formed into Jesus' image, to reflect his love and his grace, his faithfulness and his justice. That's the direction and the destination for every Christian's life. 
Why does God do this? Paul says, so that Jesus might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And as our older brother, everything that's true of Jesus is and will be true of us. Yeah? Verse 17 of Romans 8, Paul says that we are now co-heirs with Christ. So just as Jesus died in sin, so too are we dead to sin through our baptism and each and every day as the Holy Spirit gives us power to be slaying sin. And just as Jesus was raised to new life, like so will we be raised to new and eternal life. And actually each and every day, as you die to yourself, repent and turn toward God in faith, you're experiencing the renewing power of Jesus' resurrected life, transforming your heart, your life, giving you hope and love and joy in relationship with God. And so conformity to Jesus' image, the conformity to the pattern and the cycle of death and resurrection, that's the destination. That's the goal for the Christian's life. But I wonder if that's the image that you have at the forefront of your mind when you wake up in the morning and roll out of bed or as you walk out the front door to go to work or to drop your kids off to school or whatever. What is that image that influences your daily life the most? And whether we're Christians or not, every person wants some sort of assurance that things are gonna work out, right? If I've got this image in my mind of the kind of person that I wanna become, I wanna know that there's a pretty high probability that I'm gonna get there. We all need an assurance that things are gonna go our way because assurance helps us to persevere, to push through the hard times, to endure suffering. But unfortunately, life is pretty uncertain, right? Just this week, I couldn't have predicted with 100% certainty that the RBA was gonna raise interest rates again. I couldn't have guessed that every device connected to the Optus network was gonna be rendered completely useless. We live life forward, but because we can't predict or control the future, it's really hard to find our ultimate assurance there. Actually, what helps us is to look to the past, look to what's already happened so that we can chart a way forward. Let's look at verse 30. Paul continues, he says, those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. This is this beautiful golden chain of a string of truths of pointing out what God has done for his people. And you'll notice, yeah, the ED at the end of every verb, right? It's all in past tense. God predestined us before time began. He called us by his grace. He's justified us through Christ and he's glorified us in him. And as we look daily as, at God's past action, it ought to fill us with a great deal of confidence for the future. Personalize it. God, you've chosen me. You've called me. You've justified me. And these are past events that we enjoy the fruit of right now. Since we're predestined, called, and justified by God, we can experience, actually, forgiveness, reconciliation, and relationship with God and His family right now. 
but are we glorified? How glorious does your existence feel right now? I don't know about you, not the most glorious thing sometimes. Woke up this morning with a sore back. May have cracked it at the kids before breakfast, struggling with sin. How glorious is that? Maybe you're sitting here and life is far from glorious right now and things have gone a bit sideways. What's Paul talking about here? All right, I get the whole called, predestined, justified thing, maybe glorified. See, what Paul's doing here is pointing us to the assurance of a future event, our future event, that's grounded in a past event, the resurrection of Jesus. See, if Jesus was raised from the dead, then nothing can be the same. If he was resurrected in glory, then every Christian joined to him will be resurrected in glory too. And so as sure as the sun will rise tomorrow, so sure is the promise of glory for every Christian who believes that Jesus was raised from the dead. And yeah, we do share in a measure of God's glory here and now. It's beautiful. It's wonderful. It's deeply satisfying. But there's, there's coming a day where he will raise us up in Christ and we will see God face to face. We will behold our Savior as he is and we will be made like him. Doug Moo puts it this way. The issue has been settled. God has determined that just as Jesus was resurrected and glorified, so too will every man and woman and child join to him by faith. It's a sure thing. And so the fruit of all of this in our lives as God's people should be a life that's deeply sustained by a confidence and an assurance in God's purposes. Through every moment of joy and agony, he is working for our good. Through every trial and triumph, he is conforming us to Jesus' image. And when death comes knocking and you breathe your last breath, it will come with a sigh of peace, knowing that you are securely held by Christ and that just as Jesus was raised in glory, so will you be. That's the confidence that a Christian has in their daily life. And that is what God is forming us into, Jesus' image. And so I want to leave us with this question. Who or what do you lean on to give you certainty for the future? And I wonder, what fruit does that bear? Because all of this is well and good, but unless it actually connects with our lived experience day to day, then nothing's changed. But if by faith, as God's people, we can take hold of these truths and make some space for the Spirit of God to apply them to our lives and work them out and conform us to Jesus' image, then it's all for nothing. But if we will make that space, and if we will meditate on these truths, and if we will say yes to the work of the Spirit, then nothing will shake you. Nothing will shake us. Nothing can snatch us out of Jesus' hand. And so when fear arises, and when anxiety strikes, and when worries come, and when life disappoints, there's a confidence and an assurance in knowing that I'm safe and secure in Christ. 
and that he is able to work all things out for good. Let me pray. Father, thank you for these glorious and wonderful truths. Thank you that our lives are securely held in Christ. Thank you that you've called us by name and we are yours, not because of our holiness or our goodness or our performance or because there's some lack in you, but purely because you are a gracious God who delights in saving sinners. You've called each of us by name. So I pray for us as a church family and I pray for us as brothers and sisters in Christ that we would have a deep experience of that. Confidence and assurance. Please work that out by the power of your spirit. Remind us that we are your children for the sake of your name, for the sake of your purposes in the world. Please do this. In Jesus' name, amen.